Welcome to the Global Energy and Environmental Law Podcast. My name is Mayanna Dillinger. I'm an Associate Professor of Law with the University of South Dakota School of Law. Today's Monday, May 15th, 2017. I have the honor and pleasure of interviewing David R. Montgomery, who is a MacArthur Fellow and Professor of Geomorphology at the University of Washington. He's the author of The Hidden Half of Nature and Dirt, The Erosion of Civilizations, as well as other award-winning popular science books. His most recent book is Growing a Revolution, Bringing Our Soil Back to Life. He lives in Seattle with his wife, author and biologist Anne B. Clay, and Loki, their guide dog, Dropout. David Montgomery, welcome. Hey, well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Tell our listeners, first of all, why you, being a geologist, wanted to write a book about farming. Well, you know, I, I get that question. Um, the uh, I came to it because, as a geologist, I'm the kind of geologist that studies how landscapes evolve. And so one of the things that is crucially important in my discipline is understanding the nature of the soil, how it forms, how it helps to shape topography, terrain, over the long haul. And so I really came to thinking about soil, if, if you'll pardon me, from the bottom up, looking mm -hmm. at how rocks break down into soil and get get um, mixed with biological material, organic matter, to create fertile soil. And I got into thinking about its relationship to farming when I was writing a book about the history of soil erosion and, and soil uh, abuse, if you will, mm -hmm. on the, the course and fate of human civilizations. And I thought I was really writing about soil erosion. In the end, when the book was done, I realized that I had written a history of farming <laughs> because that was the mechanism through mm -hmm. which humans have affected the distribution, quality, even the presence mm -hmm. of soil on the landscapes that we farm to, to draw our sustenance, um, to grow our food on. And I wrote that book, Dirt, the Erosion of Civilizations, a, a, exactly a decade ago. It came out in 2007. And over the subsequent decade, I spent a lot of time thinking about how we could not repeat the lesson of ancient societies that destroyed their soil. Places like Syria and uh, Libya are two really good examples that mm -hmm. are still in the news today, mm -hmm. in part because of the, um, uh, the legacy of degraded soil and what that does to um, impoverish human societies. Um, so I spent a lot of time um, thinking about that. I got invited to go speak at farming conferences about the long-term effects of soil erosion. And I started listening to farmers who were restoring life to their soil, rebuilding fertile soil um, through changing up their farming practices. And I started to recognize that there, there's a... Um, there was actually some good news here in terms mm -hmm. of how we might be able to switch up the way that we farm to mm -hmm. avoid these past mistakes. Mm -hmm. And, and growing a revolution is, mm -hmm. is my story of going out and visiting farmers who were doing those kind of regenerative practices and trying to learn about from them what works and, and how generalizable is it. So you're hinting at this already, um, and uh, certainly you're the subtitle of your book, Growing a Revolution, Bringing Our Soil Back to Life, also indicates that that, uh, that you see the problem with agriculture today being uh, one about the soil. Is that what you see the real problem with agriculture being, or could you elaborate on what, what is the problem with agriculture today? Well, you know, there's, there's a number of problems, but I, I think that the one that we have a real opportunity to solve is in how we think about the soil as a system, and that can ripple out into our agricultural practices and transform farming um, and help us solve some of the other critical problems that we face 
uh, in, in the 21st century. And at the heart of it, we've tended to think about farming for the last 100, 150 years as or think about the soil in farming as a chemical reservoir, something that we can add fertilizer to, that we can manipulate on a chemical basis to grow more to grow more crops. And the mm -hmm. challenge, I think, is to start thinking about it as a biological system, to think about the life in the soil, the soil ecology from the scientific rather than the environmentalist point of view. It's sort of mm -hmm. how do these organisms interact? Because we've learned in the last few decades about the fundamental connections between soil life and the the life above ground the connections between the life in the root zone the bacteria and the fungi and the life above ground and my wife and i wrote a book called the hidden half of nature that came out a couple of years ago that talked about the science behind that recognition and those relationships mm -hmm. and you know how we can bring that to bear to transform farming is where the real opportunity lies and that doing so could help us solve a number of other problems, uh, not just being able to feed the world well into the future, which is a, a potentially big problem, because if we continue to degrade our soils, even as the human population goes up, it's going to become progressively harder to feed everybody. Yeah. And you know, if we can restore life and fertility to our soil, managing that problem will become much easier over oh. the next you know, coming decades and centuries, and even after that, beyond. Sure. That reminds me of one of the myths that you um, attack in your book. Uh, so uh, you you comment that in, uh, that the fact that or the the statement that industrialized agrochemical agriculture feeds the world today is a myth. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, sure. I mean, we uh, we in the developed world are are accustomed to big farms growing most of our food, and then we get it out of secondary outlets where it's been shipped to. But if you look at what's really feeding humanity, something like three quarters of the farms worldwide are smaller than uh, two and a half acres, or about mm -hmm. a hectare, the typical size of a city block. You know, most farms in the world are not really big farms, and family farms are producing something like eighty percent of the world's food. So if you look at what is feeding humanity today? Mm -hmm. Those of us in the developed world, um, you know, you could make the case that it's large-scale industrialized agriculture, but that's only that's not the case around the world. Um, and if you look at where most of the food grown in North America goes, it's not being shipped overseas to feed the world, as you often mm -hmm. hear. Right, right. Most of most of it's actually going to feed livestock in the developed world or mm -hmm. to. Uh, going into the processed food industry in the developed world or to go to biofuels in the developed world. Mm -hmm. There's actually far less use of the food grown in the bread baskets of North America um, in the developing world than one runs into when one starts the usual conversations about feeding the world. Right. Does that tie into another myth that you described too, namely that industrialized agrochemical agriculture is more efficient than uh, these traditional methods? Or what what are the efficiency levels today uh, in small farms in the developed or developing world compared to these much bigger farms? Yeah, and you know, and efficiency depends in some part on how you define efficiency, what what you're what you're optimizing, if you will, and thinking about it. And if you look at um, the Ability to grow food per unit of input, per unit of fertilizer, per unit of pesticide, for example. Um, there was a, a National Research Council report back in, I think it was 1989. It's it's not a new report. This has been known for some time that uh, they wrote that well-managed alternative farming systems nearly always use less synthetic chemical pesticides, fertilizers, and antibiotics per unit of production than do conventional farms. Hmm. In other words, 
you know, they may be able to grow more food per more of a particular crop per mm -hmm. hectare, sort of a higher mm -hmm. yield of, of one crop mm -hmm. uh, in a monoculture based on a lot of inputs. But the efficiency of using all those inputs is mm -hmm. lower than on small diversified farms. And in mm -hmm. fact, if you look at the total food production per hectare of land, which if you're really concerned about feeding the world, that's mm -hmm. what you want to know. Mm -hmm. Not how much corn you can produce or how much wheat you can produce. You want to know how many, how much food you can produce mm -hmm. uh, per hectare. And if you have a small diversified farm growing multiple crops, that gives you um, a higher efficiency when looked at in those terms, in terms right. of total food right. output per land area. So that, you know, in terms of the efficiency argument, which is that second major myth of modern agriculture, it depends how you do, how you look at um, efficiency. Right. Um, sort of to, I wouldn't say push back on that, but to see that from a, uh, the develop uh, the developed country, developed world's point of view, um, is that realistic? Do you think to think that some farms should produce, as you said, ideally, you know, more different crops, you know, on the same farms, or you know, are those days just gone by where you know instead these we have these giant farms producing only a couple of <laughs> yeah. different things, if that? Well, you know. That was one of the key questions I wanted to ask when I went out to visit farms around the world where they people had adopted uh, regenerative practices mm -hmm. based on three principles, really mm -hmm. ditching the plow and going mm -hmm. to no-till farming to minimize mm -hmm. disturbance of the soil, okay. um, adopting cover crops to mm -hmm. um, increase both the organic matter in the soil and to fix nitrogen by including legumes in their cover crops, mm -hmm. and then Growing a more diverse mix of crops, growing mm -hmm. at least three or four crops rather than just one or two right, in a crop right, rotation. Right. So one of the questions I wanted to ask is, can that work on really big farms, mm -hmm. you know, big mechanized North American farm mm -hmm. farms? Uh, I also wanted to ask whether those practices were reasonable to think that they could be integrated into small-scale subsistence agriculture. Mm -hmm. And I was really pretty amazed at how generalizable those Three simple principles, which completely turn the philosophy of modern farming on its head, mm -hmm. because today we rely on intensive tillage with um, uh, intensive fertilization rather than cover crops for returning fertility, mm -hmm. and we grow uh, extensive monocultures. So mm -hmm. these three principles, you know, flip modern farming philosophy completely on its head, hmm. but they worked. Hmm. And the largest farm I visited was um, a 20,000 acre-ish farm in um, South Dakota, mm -hmm. that uh, you know used you know giant what I thought of as like prairie crawling starships. I mean the technology on these 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 uh, these this farm equipment was uh, amazing. It mm -hmm. was um, you know you could the GPS system would track where you were and every bit of fertilizer that went on the land, and then you could see what was harvested there later when they came back and mm -hmm. and harvested after the crop. Um, the technological sophistication was amazing. But these farmers had adopted these three principles and completely changed up their practices from conventional. And what it led them to is a healthier soil that was building more organic matter that allowed them to reduce their fertilizer inputs, reduce their herbicide inputs, and reduce their pesticide in inputs. Mm -hmm. And that saved that saved them money. So they really, they really liked it because sure. their harvests were sustained and their costs were decreased. Mm -hmm. So I actually think that these these principles uh, can work on really large farms. It's mm -hmm. not we have the the efficiency argument in terms of studies that have been done already and small farms are more prone to have adopted these kinds of principles, but they're I think they're generalizable and they're scalable. Mm -hmm. And um, so you mentioned those principles just really briefly in case some of the listeners don't know exactly what it is. I 
don't even necessarily know the, all the advantages <laughs> myself. Can you elaborate on them real quickly? The no-till, the yeah. cover crops, and the diversification principles? Yeah, sure. There's um, If you put those three practices together, it, it, it falls under the umbrella of what's called conservation agriculture, which is defined mm -hmm. as adopting all three principles. And the first principle is really minimizing disturbance of the soil. And why would you do that? That's to uh, minimize the disruption of soil life. It turns out that mycorrhizal fungi in the soil um, link up with plants. Literally, they're 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 uh, they they link two plants and then they go out into the soil and link to mineral particles, and they actually mine things like phosphorus or iron or manganese, uh, elements that plants need to grow and to be healthy. And they bring them back and they trade them to plants for some of the uh, uh, some of the sugary. Um, harvest from photosynthesis. Plants will push nutrients mm -hmm. out of their roots mm -hmm. to feed uh, the soil life. And mm -hmm. so it's a, it's a subterranean symbiosis through mm -hmm. which the microbes in the soil are helping the plants grow strong and be healthy so the plants can help feed the microbes. And you know it's an everybody wins kind of scenario. Mm -hmm. What does a plow do to that? If you take a plow to a field where the, the plants and the mycorrhizal fungi have a, this um, uh, symbiotic relationship going, it basically disrupts it. It's kind of like somebody taking a, a giant spoon and taking the lid off your house and stirring all your belongings up. Um, it's complete disruption, throws everything into chaos and disarray. And yet these partnerships between the mycorrhizal fungi and plants go back all the way to the very first plant fossils that we have some 450 million years ago. These are fundamental relationships. Mm -hmm. So the minimizing disturbance is something that is uh, led to the adoption of uh, no-till agriculture, which is planting without plowing. Mm -hmm. And there's specialized planters and equipment to do that, that um, sort of poke seeds into the ground or drop them in a narrow little slot instead of churning the whole mm -hmm. soil up. So that's the first principle is to mm -hmm. sort of minimize disturbance. Mm -hmm. And the second one um, is in the shorthand, in my shorthand is to cover up. And that's mm -hmm. to keep the ground covered by with cover crops. In other words, after you've grown a crop, don't let the land be bare. And that's typically what would happen under plow-based agriculture. You'd grow your crop, then you'd plow the soil back mm -hmm. up, and you'd have a bare field for some time. That leaves it vulnerable to erosion, and it also oxidizes the organic matter in the soil, which degrades the fertility. Mm -hmm. So by covering up with a cover crop, um, what you're doing is growing a plant that's taking nutrients from the soil, bringing them into the plant, and then you kill the cover crop before it matures so that you th then lay it down like a mulch mm -hmm. so that it then rots and returns those elements. It's taken from the mineral particles. It's now in organic matter and it's in biological circulation. Hmm. And that includes nitrogen, um, so it's carbon, it includes the, all the micronutrients that those plants scavenged out of the soil in the first place. Um, and one of the farmers I met uh, referred to his cover crops as catch and release nutrients, uh, where basically the plants are catching nutrients out mm -hmm. of the soil, bring them into their bodies, and then they release them as the, as the plant, as the cover crop then decays and it feeds the commercial crop that follows. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like an organic fertilizer. And, you know, some people call it, it's a method of green manuring. Right. Um, and then growing diversity, what that can help do is essentially reduce the need to rely on um, pesticides, insecticides in particular. Um, because it, what happens if you plant 
say corn, for example, in the same field year after year, and you get a corn eating pest moving in and it lays some eggs and the next year you plant corn in that same field. You've basically set the breakfast table. You've seen, you know, you've set an entire grocery store mm-hmm. up for a pest and they thrive. Mm-hmm. What happens if instead those eggs hatch out and you're growing barley or you're growing some other thing that mm-hmm. that organism doesn't eat? You in other words, you can manage the pests with uh, keeping them off guard, off balance ecologically and cover crops that second method that second pillar also can be used to help suppress weeds um, hmm. by essentially letting those grow up ahead of the weeds intentionally, um, and then you knock them down. I, there were some of these farmers' fields that I visited who practiced practiced all three of these methods. I couldn't find a single weed in their fields. Wow, that is impressive. Yeah. And as you said, then that also will eliminate a lot of the need for various chemicals, pesticides, maybe even or fertilizers, obviously, as you're saying, two different things. What about uh, yeah, the, exactly. the yep? What about the myth uh, that we need more GMOs because they could uh, result in increased yields, reduce the need for fertilizers and pesticides? So then, you know, what is your view about that? Yeah, well, you know, that view. My view of that is sort of, I think, succinctly summarized in the caption for the section I talk about in that book called I called it the GMO sideshow, because <laughs> it's you know we. I, I'm not sure it's, I mean, it is an important issue to think about and for people to argue about in terms of the future of agriculture. But if you look at the promises that were made when GMO crops were first being proposed and introduced, uh, you know, they were going to greatly increase crop yields. Well, there's been a couple studies now that have looked at the rate of yield increases comparing North America with Europe. And so mm-hmm. North America, we've got a lot of GMOs, Europe doesn't. Mm-hmm. The, the pace of increases in yields is perfectly parallel on both continents. Mm-hmm. In other words, there's and there's a there's I think the New York Times actually did an interesting story on this in the last six months where there's really no evidence that adoption of GMO crops have have had a big impact on crop yields. Crop yields have been going up since the introduction of GMOs, but they've been going up just as much in the non-GMO crops. Huh. Wow. Uh, and what that testifies to is really the power, I think, of conventional crop breeding, sort of the old-fashioned way to make GMOs. <laughs> right. Um, that that those are where the real advances in yield have been. Um, right. A lot of the advances in terms of you know why the wide adoption of GMO crops is in the U.S. There's been a major adoption of crops that are resistant to the herbicide glyphosate, mm-hmm. um, and that's and one of the big reasons why that um, uh, has been popular among farmers is that think about the problem of weed control. Mm-hmm. Having having a uh, herbicide that kills everything mm-hmm. except your crop. I mean that's the ultimate weed control. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that's what glyphosate offered them, and it's been widely adopted um, more, I think, for that reason than for any impact on yields. Even though you will hear in arguments that you know we need we need GMO crops to increase yields, right, right. I just don't see that the evidence the evidentiary base is actually there for that claim. Now, in terms of insecticide use, it's it's a mixed bag. It's a sort of a different story. The introduction of of, of BT modified crops actually led to the reduction in the use of some pretty nasty pesticides, some pretty mm-hmm. nasty insecticides. But, you know, whether or not that's a good idea and the trade-offs involved and all that are, 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 are in fact, big issues. But the what I wanted to uh, call out in that is that the 
much of the argument we have about the future of agriculture in the public arena these days is sort of the is cast as organic agriculture versus sort of GMO and agrotech agriculture. Mm-hmm. And I actually think that that's um, that misses the opportunity for this suite of three process that that, these, that this suite of three practices, ditching the plow, covering up, and growing diversity, mm-hmm. can offer for rebuilding soil health, both on conventional farms. Mm-hmm. and on organic farms mm-hmm. and that the conventional farms that I visited that actually adopted these techniques wholeheartedly and, and then pursued it for a decade or two had so reduced their chemical input use that I came to calling them organic-ish um, in the sense that they had you know dropped their diesel and fertilizer use by anywhere from 50 to 90 percent and, wow. and, and some had completely gone off of pesticides and herbicides um, and that's a remarkable transformation but I didn't – there was only one farm that I visited that was a, a, a self-consciously organic farm. I visited the Rodale Institute in, in Pennsylvania just to see whether these techniques could work on organic farms as well as on conventional farms. Mm-hmm. And they've done a brilliant job of doing long-term tests of, of some of these ideas. And they've got very solid data to demonstrate that use, organic agriculture using these three techniques can actually um, – be competitive with or outcompete conventional agriculture in terms of yield. That sounds really very promising, actually. And so I presume that, um, as you said, these principles would uh, for sure not only apply to the developing world, but in fact, uh, you discovered that the developing world is already using uh, these principles and methodologies. Is that correct? Yes, in some places. I mean, the the you know the rate of adoption of this full suite of conservation agricultural practices is quite small in both the developed and developing world, which means there's a lot of potential for a lot of good to be done through adopting them. But I visited uh, the Center for No-Till, No-Till Research uh, near Kumasi, Ghana, that's run by a gentleman named Kofi Boa. And Kofi is someone who... Um, started off thinking about no-till farming practices in great part because he wanted to get away from the use of fire in traditional agriculture in the area where he's from because his his mother's farm had burned down when he was a child. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he he vowed to try and figure out how to do agriculture without fire, which is part of the traditional slash-and-burn agriculture in the region where he's from. And that was in Africa, did you say? Yes, in in Ghana, in West Africa. In Ghana, sorry, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And his... um, you know, the, the traditional agriculture there involved clearing a little piece of land with fire, mm-hmm. burning it, uh, then planting it for a year or two, and then abandoning it back to the jungle and then clearing another piece. So it's that mm-hmm. shifting style of slash and burn agriculture that was common in many places around the world, including Europe, you know, thousands mm-hmm. a long time ago. Yeah. Um, but what happens when your population density gets high enough that you have to keep farming the same piece of land over and over? You then miss that state the stage of letting the jungle come back and rebuild the fertility. Mm-hmm. And so the, the, what they were finding is that the soils in his region, as they had to farm more and more consistently on the same piece of land, they were degrading their soil. Mm-hmm. So Kofi was looking for a, a different recipe, a different way to actually practice agriculture. And the methods he adopted uh, on and then taught to the subsistence farmers from his village were to uh, not disturb the soil. To you know, they do minimal disturbance when they plant. They use the remains of previous crops as a mulch to cover the soil, um, and they plant cover crops to cover up the soil and uh, interplant. Uh, legumes along with their with their grains, so that the the legumes can um, fix nitrogen and and build 
build nitrogen in the soil to help uh, fertilize the crops, and they grow a diversity of crops, sometimes in the same field. There was one field that I visited that I believe it had eight different uh, harvestable crops growing at the same time. Hmm. Wow. And so that was your uh, experience in Africa. You mentioned uh, in a previous conversation we had that you had also studied some of these same techniques in other parts of the world. Is that correct? In Latin America, do you know, do these same principles work around the world or... Yeah, and that was that was one of the key questions I was asking myself in visiting farmers around the world uh, that I roll into the story in the book. Um, and the short answer is yes, <laughs> uh, they do seem to work. The the particular practices that one would use to implement them are very different in Ghana than in Costa Rica than in North America, um, but the general principles are really the same. Um, and so in Costa Rica, I visited a small. Um, agroforestry operation that was um, grew, he was growing something like a hundred different kinds of food in what to me looked like a food forest. You could go hiking through this farm and if you'd just dropped me there, I might have thought I was in the middle of the jungle, not in the middle of a farm. Mm -hmm. um, I visited a coffee plantation that was had adopted these techniques to modify uh, their production and they were using, you know, they were growing coffee, so there was essentially a monoculture, mm -hmm. but they were growing other crops Uh, in between the coffee bushes on the on the the on the, in the, sort of in the rows and the spaces between them and so they were getting a diversity in in terms of plant life and cover crops even though they had one primary cash crop um, and I visited a subsistence farm in, in Costa Rica as well um, where a woman was trying to basically rebuild the fertility of a farm that had been abandoned um, decades ago because of degraded soil. And she was well on her way to turning it back into a successful commercial farm. Um, and one of the things that really excited me about these general principles is not only do they seem to be scalable from small farms to large farms and apply in the both the developing and developed world – But I think they can actually rebuild the fertility of land that's been degraded and bring it back to a higher level of agricultural production, which if you think about the problem of feeding the world you know, in the second half of this ongoing century, that would be a huge advantage if we could actually increase our stock of productive farmland without cutting down more forest. Right. That is right. Um, how do you see returning to uh, North America What kind of pushback do you get uh, on all this, David? I mean, what kind of views do you get from the farmers, some of the bigger agricultural companies? Are they on board with these theories in general, or, or how do you see that? Well, uh, frankly, I see it as a mixed bag. Uh, there are some uh, who say, well, that's just crazy. We can't do it that way because we don't do it that way, and so mm -hmm. how could we possibly change? <laughs> um But, you know, as a geologist, I sort of look back at the history of farming and go, well, we've changed our farming practices through you know, at least four major agricultural revolutions so right. far. Right. There's no reason why we couldn't um, foster a fifth agricultural revolution that prioritizes practices that build soil health and, and rebuild uh, fertility. But there, there's also – there's a number of um, foundations and a new institute um, called the Soil Health Institute that's actually fairly um, – well-backed by some of the major agribusiness players um, that are promoting these ideas of soil health. And so what I'm hoping we see is as people realize that the science behind the idea of enlisting the soil biology to work with us rather than trying to suppress it, mm -hmm. if we can take advantage of all that biological activity to, to enhance the fertility of our soil, 
soils. That's a business opportunity, mm-hmm. not just for farmers to restore their soil, but for those in agribusiness to promote practices and to develop products that will actually um, enhance that going forward. Um, so my hope is that we'll see greater recognition of the opportunities that this change in thinking can provide, not just for farmers in the environment, but also for business opportunities. That makes sense. What about the view? You've mentioned it several times, and I think that is um, obviously a big problem today that uh, the you know rising population will need a lot more food and water in the future. How yeah. do companies here in this country look at that? Is it is you know are people receptive to that point of view, or is it more like you said, more business point of view here that you know everyone is in it for themselves, or or you know when you mentioned that argument to to different stakeholders out there, how do they look at that? In this well, you know the 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 people that I actually talked the most about that with were the actual farmers themselves that I visited, oh, and really? yeah. To a person, I, I think I'm safe in saying this. To to a person, they all expressed a, a sense of almost like a moral obligation to tr- because of the problem of a growing human population in this mm-hmm. world to try and actually leave their land in as good a shape as they can to future generations because they know that they're going to depend on that land for their food. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, some of them were most concerned about leaving their land to their children. Others um, were, were more concerned in the abstract. But they all wanted they want to do the right thing, as many of them said, by their mm-hmm. land. Okay. Um, now, it, it's it's more difficult to ascribe that kind of motivation to a large corporation. Yeah. Um, but the uh, and I think that there will be pushback. Um, from corn, from certain sectors within the agribusiness community because it's very difficult to imagine any company being wildly excited about a new philosophy and set of ideas that could result in using less of their product. Right. Right. That is true. But then, like you said, businesses yeah. shift and, <laughs> you know, things things happen in over time and in different yeah, sectors exactly. in a way. So. And I think that's one of the big challenges we face, not just in the agricultural world, but in the energy world as well, in right. terms of you know the historical succession, if you will, of, of major industries and businesses. We're at an inflection point in history where if we can go from an agriculture that degraded the fertility of the soil as we used it to grow our food to an agriculture that builds the fertility of the soil as mm-hmm. we use it to grow our food, that truly is a revolution. That's the, the source of the yeah, the the title of the book. Right. Um, it would be a revolution in not just in thought, but in practice. It could literally change the world. And that's going to have both positive effects on farmers and on the environment. And it will have both disruptive effects and opportunities for the people who buy from farmers and sell from farmers. Because if we're growing a more diverse set of crops, there will be you know, more crops of a greater variety that are going out there to feed the world. And those of us who would like to support these kinds of activities ought to think more about, you know, eating a more diverse diet, create demand for things like beans and peas, which are great cover crops Mm then that can help fix nitrogen in the soil. So, Mm -hmm. you know, save the world, you know, eat your beans. Hey, that (laughs) sounds like the plan. (laughs) David Montgomery, thank you so much. The book is Growing a Revolution, Bringing Our Soil Back to Life. Thank you. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. You've been listening to the Global Energy and Environmental Law Podcast. This was an interview with David Montgomery, Professor of Geomorphology at the University of Washington.